You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Iowa Sportsman. I'll tell you right now, it is brutal outside, and we're talking about deep snow, cold temps, and for a guy who I guess I'm going to put myself under the nature lover category, uh, wildlife lover category, that um, I I have recently started thinking about how this cold weather this uh, deep snow, these icy conditions are impacting the wildlife in our area. So I uh, called my good buddy up over from the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, uh, Jim Coffey. He's a wildlife biologist. And on this episode, we have a really good conversation about how these weather conditions are impacting the wildlife. We talk about everything from deer and turkeys to upland species like pheasants and quail. We even talk about rabbits and raccoons and, and songbirds and and even bats. So uh, we talk a little bit about all of the different species in Iowa, give or take, right? And uh, it's just a really interesting conversation. And we even talk about things like, should I help feed the animals this time uh, uh, of year when these conditions are pretty poor? But it comes back around to, uh, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of evolution have led them to adapt to these conditions. But uh, don't take my word for it listen to what Jim has to say. He is the the expert after all. So uh, without further ado, let's get into today's episode with wildlife biologist Jim Coffey. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Jim Coffey from the Iowa DNR. How are we doing today? Very good. A little cold, but very good. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you kind of you kind of hit the nail on the head right there with what we're going to be discussing today, and it's going to be a uh, a quick and hopefully interesting uh, conversation about cold temps, snow cover, and how that affects uh, the wildlife. But before we get into that topic, you know, any deeper, how how was your uh, hunting season or fishing season this fall? Uh, you know, every day I get to go out is a blessing. 
and I'm getting to the point in my life that sometimes bringing game home is not the blessing. <laughs> so I, I did uh, quite a bit of deer hunting and uh, was not successful, but saw lots of animals, saw lots of fun things. And the same with my fishing. You know, when I go out and the bobber goes under anymore, I'm just happy. That's Whatever's a win. on the other end, is, as long as it pulls, I'm happy. That's a, that's a fact. Um, any any cool or exciting? I know this is kind of a, a, a I don't a weird time. You can't really do too much out in the field. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but is there any kind of cool projects that you guys are working on now or plan to uh, start working on in the spring? Yeah, there's there's lots of stuff. I mean, the DNR is it's, it's a 24 hour day, seven day a week job. Um, and whenever we're doing, whenever it's slow, we're still thinking about things in the future. And, and right now, we're actively trying to catch some wild turkeys to put some radio transmitters on them to uh, address a few questions that we have on what's happening with wild turkeys in, in the Midwest. Um, you know, we're always working with uh, the deer hunters and the deer situations, and whether it be depredation or um, just private lands management. We're working with people through those programs. Um, and then we're always getting ready for the new rules and regulation changes that come through with legislation. Um, so it's always a busy time with the DNR. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if you have these numbers in front of you. Uh, I'm sorry if I didn't prepare you for this, but, um, uh, you know, there's there's been rumblings that through the state of Iowa and this whole uh, COVID business that uh, fishing license and hunting license, license both went up this year as far as people who purchased them. Yep, and, and I try to be an optimistic person, and, you know, COVID's been a terrible thing for, for everybody individually as well as the country, um, but a positive outcome outtake on the whole thing is is that it reconnected people with the outdoors um we couldn't go do some of those things that we've been we've been socially been doing for years and now we could go outside we saw about a 20 percent increase in turkey license sales we know that our fishing license numbers have gone up tremendously we're seeing more people in our state parks we're seeing more people on our trail systems we want to get out and we want to be active and and iowa's outdoors has provided a great escape for covid for us yeah i'll tell you this man um just taking my kids out to the state parks that we usually go to uh, in the spring, summer, and fall time, I just noticed a lot more people just enjoying those places, whether it's just walking the hiking trails or, you know, going to the beach. And, um, you know, I, we have a state park over there by Tiffin and uh, 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 Camp Park. And uh, so I just notice a lot more people enjoying that, and I can't help but say that's a good thing. And, and you know, that's also been seen in, in the um, products that have been sold, that you go into any of your sporting goods stores, and they were out of ammunition this spring. They're out of binoculars. They're out of hiking boots. Yeah. Um, There's just a lot more people pursuing. We're getting a lot more phone calls about those general pursuits of how do I go bird watching? Where would I go do this? How do I identify this track or this, you know? So people, again, are reconnecting and, and trying to gain those outdoor skills that might have been lost through a generation or so. And, and I'm really hoping that they continue with that, that when we go back to some form of normality, um, that, that, you know, they don't just jump right back into let's go to the mall on Saturday. It's let's go take that hike on Saturday. Or I heard that, the, you know, the, uh, the, the ducks are migrating. Let's go out to our local marsh and just see what species of ducks are flying through this weekend, you know, and see some of those great natural wonders with the spring migrations or the turkeys gobbling or the deer rut that happens that, that we just kind of take for granted and we forgot they're out there all the time. Yeah. Yeah, if you ask my wife, uh, I never forget about the deer rut, by the way, just to let you know. <laughs> well, right now in Iowa, you know, we're running across uh, 
uh, a pretty good stretch of not only cold temperatures, but uh, snow that just isn't going away and it's starting to accumulate. And I tell the story on the last couple podcasts that I did, but I went to go take a, a trail camera down that I've had up since October on one of the farms that I hunt. And I was high stepping through what seemed like 18 uh, inches of snow at times up to two feet, you know, up to my knees. And I just can't help but think about the wildlife and um, how they are living in those conditions. So what I'd like to do today is kind of get your expertise uh, and knowledge and just ask this real high level question. What, it, what is wildlife doing right now in a situation like what we're in in Iowa right now? Yeah, they're doing the best they can, you know, and, and that's the definition of wild is they're out there every day and they have to deal with whatever is being thrown at them because they have two options every day, live or die. Yeah. And, you know, when we're, when we're sick, we, we call in and we take a day off or, or we get our spouse to bring us a little chicken soup and somebody kind of nurses us through. Wildlife, it's I got to get up and eat. I got to do the things I got to do or I'm going to die. And so as wildlife managers, those are the things we want to look at as those limiting factors that are out there that help get wildlife through the difficult times, that keeps the, the ebbs and the flows from being so dramatic and being more consistent. And so wildlife has adapted for, for eons you know, of, of how they're going to look at every day. And when winter like this is thrown at them, they have some capabilities to deal with what a normal winter would be and what an extreme winter would be. But when it becomes extreme, extreme winters, then things start to, you know, the game changes a little bit. Yeah. And so every every animal has adapted to some mechanism that helps them try to get through short spans of very difficult times. And then when those when those time spans get longer and longer, the stress gets more and more, and eventually some of them don't make it. They're going to die. Yeah. I think we had an example down in southern Iowa where I, I tend to go shed hunting and uh, southeast Iowa. And we had an event where there was a good amount of snow on the ground and the snow melted in a period of like there was two days where it was like 50 degrees in I want to say early February. And then it, it then another huge cold front came through and froze everything real hard. And we had a big uh, stint there where it was. Um, you know, teens for a while and thus making the ground, all the moisture in the ground frozen, right? So what I was looking at is I was, I was walking through these ag fields looking for shed antlers and they couldn't even get to the corn that was there because it was frozen into the ground, right? So, um, and then I noticed, you know, as I'm walking through the timber, I, I noticed more dead deer that year than previous, previous years. So what I'd like to do is kind of start off with whitetails here and talk a little bit about how do they survive? What are they doing right now to stay alive in these conditions? Yeah. So, so whitetails are probably the, the, the species I'm least concerned about right now. Okay. What we okay. tend in, in Iowa, we tend to think about corn and beans and all those things that we put in as food plots or as residue from ag um, production as being the carryover. But we have to remember that whitetail deer are genetically browsers. They eat the buds and tips of things that are out there on the landscape all the time. It's just that it's a lot easier to go eat corn when corn's available. It's a high carbohydrate. It provides a lot of quick energy. But in reality, is they evolved on a landscape where corn was not present. 
so they can go right back to eating buds and nips of trees and things like that and do quite well, and they can carry through. They've got long legs. They can move from point A to point B if they have to. They've got um, a, a evolved fur coat that's hollow, that's essentially like a double-paned window that does not lose lose insulation. So they are very well at keeping their body temperatures up, finding enough food, and being able to move to get into places um, that protect them from extreme wind conditions or whatever it might be. So deer are going to be the least impacted animal in most cases by, by an event like this. Now, that being said, is there's always places where deer will be impacted, especially where we did not provide some, some thermal cover um, or they've got to move long distances to get through um, to, to some place to feed. And in places like northern Iowa, where it's extreme agriculture, a lot of times that's our, our farm windbreaks. They're going to move into those farm windbreaks and live directly behind your house and consume those, those arborvitaes and those other um, you know yard species because that's the food. It's providing the thermal cover. And those are the complaints that we get this time of year. It's like, I got, you know, six deer living in my backyard eating my trees. Well, that's because that's the only habitat on the landscape that's going to get them through an extreme event like that. Gotcha. So, we, so deer are, are, you know, again, a very generic species that can adapt to a lot of different uh, um, situations. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing that people forget about deer is, on a, and you've seen it as a deer hunter, I'm sure, on a good snowy day, a deer can lay out there and be covered in snow, and they're perfectly fine. The only place they're losing any heat really is through their nose and their eyes. The rest of their body is so well thermal protected that they lose very little heat through it. Gotcha. So yeah. what about ice? How does ice impact this story? Yeah, so so that gets to the next thing. Cause obviously, deer like to paw. They like to get down and find that waste grain and things like that. So they, they will continue to search for it. But where we really get worried about with ice is the physical slipping and the physical cutting that may happen. So gotcha. they're out there, and say they're on a, an ice patch, and, and just like you and I, they can slip and fall and hurt themselves or strain something that now makes it more difficult to get through or makes it harder to feed as much as I need to feed because I physically damaged myself. And we'll start to get some some calls from people now um, where they're finding blood. They're out looking for sheds and they find deer tracks and they'll find blood in the tracks and they get concerned. Well, they're walking, you know, on that ice and that ice is sharp. It might be cutting the, the, the interdigital gland between their feet. It could be scraping through their shins, you know, this constant wearing and that blood's going to be dropping a little bit but that's not something that's insurmountable it's just gotcha. something that starts to be a concern that ice can have some impacts yeah okay now i heard somewhere i, I don't i forget where i heard it but th- there's a lot of people that say well man maybe i'll just go out i'll i'll drop you know 100 pounds of corn out and hopefully that will help them um, but i also yep. heard that that may not be the best thing to do it makes us feel really good yeah. Because we drop it and we walk away and we really don't know what the impact is. And the reality is you could actually be killing your deer because deer have certain bacteria in their stomachs that they have to build up over time. And, yes, corn is on the landscape in general, so we have they have some ability to digest corn. But when they're hungry and you dump a bunch of corn out, they will gorge on that corn, and their body cannot digest it. They'll actually get a, a lactic acid buildup or an acidosis, and they'll die within 24 to 48 hours. Wow. They, can, they, they basically eat themselves to death. They eat so much corn, their body can't digest it. It causes some, some internal issues, and they'll fall over dead from lactic acidosis. Um, and lactic acid is, the, is basically the buildup of lactic acid in the system. That it's toxic. You and I get it. If, if you remember when you were a kid and you went out and you ran a long distance and the next day your muscles hurt, that's lactic acidosis. 
And if you run too much and you're not prepared for that, it will actually starve your body of oxygen and you'll die. So that's the same basic scenario that can happen if you dump corn out. Now, the other issue that you get about dumping corn out is if you were going to dump it, a lot of people like to dump it where they can see the animals and know that they're doing good. But you have to remember that other animals are going to be using that, and other animals are going to be eating the animals that eat that. So now if you're not putting that in the right position, you're causing excess predation, or you're causing animals that have to move a greater distance to try to find food that's, that wasn't available to them. So you're causing, uh, you're, you're basically injecting something into the process that's not normal, you think you're helping, but can actually have a greater bad impact than good impact. Right. So you're really affecting the ecosystem as a whole. Absolutely. You know, and, and the, the scenario I always give people is, is where does a lion hunt on the Serengeti? Do they roam the plains looking for an antelope to kill? No. Every time you watch a, an outdoor television show, they're sitting beside the water hole. Yeah. Why? Because they figured out that I don't have to move the animals. My prey is going to come to me because they need that water, and I'll just sit here and kill them one by one. Yeah. And so if you dump a pile of corn out there, and whether it be a deer or a, a pheasant or a quail or a rabbit, and they get used to coming to that, pretty soon their predators are going to say, well, that's where I'm going to go. And if you're not providing escape cover or some other mechanism to allow those animals, you're basically setting them up for failure. Yeah. So is there any other, I mean, it, corn's easy because you can go to your co-op and get it, but is there something else that if a guy really, or guy or gal really wanted to go dump some food out for them, is there something better for them that that they would you, you would recommend or use? So, so what I would do is I'd go back one step and saying this isn't a conversation we should be having today. We should have been thinking about this last spring. Yeah. Is that it's not we're in an emergency situation, what can I dump? It's I should have been providing something last spring through the form of vegetation, maybe a food plot, you know, green browse, whatever it is that I wanted to put on my landscape or provided in a home range of an animal that they can get to easily that helps carry those animals through. And what that does is that takes out, again, those peaks and valleys in populations. It helps maintain stuff across the board. So this is the scenario where, yeah, we're in a bad shape right now, but we should be thinking, okay, if, if, we get, if and when we get through this fall, this winter, what should I be planning for next spring so that if this happens again next year, I don't have to worry about dumping corn out on the landscape. I don't have to worry about doing these things that I probably shouldn't be doing anyway, but it makes me feel good that I'm doing them. So what I would say in reality is if you want to go out and do something today to help wildlife, the best thing you can do is get bare ground is get someplace where the snow's removed, where the sun can hit that, open up bare dirt, and the wildlife will be attracted to that bare dirt. There are so many seeds and insects and, and waste things out there if they can get down to that bare soil. And I'm talking small mammals now and small birds, not just deer, because deer again can browse you know, up to six feet off the ground. That that bare dirt is what becomes the attractant. Gotcha. That, that those animals will get, go to that, yep. Okay, cool. Okay. All right, so yeah. you're not too concerned about the whitetails. Um, what species are you concerned about? Yeah, you get into the animals that are they're high, high uh, caloric burners, um, which tends to be your small mammals and your small game birds. Um, they need constant food most every day to keep their, their, their thermal regulation up. So the one that really comes to mind for me that I have a passion for is quail. Is, you know, quail can be devastated if we do not provide good habitat for them in, in these situations. And, you know, that's those plum thicket edges, that's the ragweed fields, uh, uh, 
weeds at the edge of the fields, those kinds of things. The overhead cover from the hawks and the predators that are after them. Um, and quail can, you know, usually live three to five days without any food at all. Um, and then they've got to start moving. They've got to start looking and trying to find some calories. So I get concerned about those small birds, um, especially when you talk about, like you talked about the ice, the crusting of the ice. They can't get down through um, to those places. they got to rely on those ragweed seeds and things that are above ground at that point. And we're a pretty clean state. I hate to say that too loud, but, you know, there's not a lot of waste out there anymore in a lot of corners. And, and uh, it's harder for those animals to move around and find those things. Gotcha. So small birds like quail, uh, do pheasants fall into that category as well? Yeah, yeah. And just a little bit bigger birds so they can handle a little bit longer. And so you move up to turkeys, and, you know, people get concerned about turkeys too. Turkeys are a little bit like deer. You know, they bud a lot. They have a lot of uh, raspberry hips and things like that. They do fine. They can find some seeps, get some green grass. But turkeys will actually roost in their tree for up to 10 days without flying down. Oh, really? Um, so, yeah, so they can, they can burn up a lot of calories. They'll actually burn up a lot of muscle, making sure that they're trying to stay alive. But when times are tough, they just won't come out of the tree because it'll burn, they'll burn more energy trying to find food than they'll find in calories. Mm. So they'll just try to wait out the storm, wait out until they can get to better weather conditions to feed. Um, and because they're a bigger bird, they can usually go you know, 10 to 14 days before they really get into, into some dire straits. What ends up impacting turkeys more, um, in most cases, is not the crusty snows. Uh, they actually prefer a little bit of crust because with their big wide foot it's like a snowshoe they can walk on top very easily and of course they can fly if they have to to get up in the trees but when you start getting fluffy snows over 10 inches deep that impacts their ability to walk around they yeah. spend the majority of their time moving by walking and when they're pushing snow with their chest it's hard to walk kind of like you were talking about 18 inches of snow and lifting yeah. your legs up yeah. and stepping you're burning a lot more calories to move around to do that Gotcha. So they would rather sit up in a tree and just pick buds off the end of the tree and eat and not fly down if they don't have to. Gotcha. So I know that it's been a while, as far as I can remember, where we've had snow coming up in, like snow still on the ground in April at some, at some times, we, you know, or maybe a really bad snowstorm that hits in April. It's been a while since that, but, you know, if, if there's going to be a year where we're still going to have snow on the ground in April, it could be this year. How will that affect nesting for some of these birds? So it's a great question. Um, it's something that we don't know a whole lot about. The one species we do know quite a bit about is waterfowl. And what we know about waterfowl is if they don't come into the spring actually gaining weight through the, through the northern migration period to get to their breeding grounds, then they'll spend time at the breeding grounds trying to get back up to weight before they start um, laying eggs and, and going through the breeding process. And that delays the overall breeding process and incubation. And, and there's some, some evidence that that, in, that has impact on survival of the young. And so what we get concerned about is that these, these turkeys or, or young birds that are coming through may have to build up more weight to get back up into a, a breeding format, which may actually delay overall um, reproduction. Now, with turkeys and ground nesting birds, you know, not all of them are successful in a first nest attempt anyway, so it may not be as big a deal. But uh, what we get concerned about is maybe even the young birds don't even attempt to nest because they were still growing going into the fall anyway. And so we don't know a whole lot, but we just know that we want them to come into the spring healthy so that they can think about reproducing, not, you know, trying to survive and put weight back on. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so uh, let's say a late snowfall in April 
um, the yeah. birds will. That doesn't that doesn't bother me. Late yeah. snowfalls in April, no big deal because there's green grass. They're fine. Right now, it's just just you know, right now they're burning calories. They're not putting weight on it. In a yeah. normal year, even turkeys would be putting weight on right now. Deer would be putting weight, especially male deer, would be putting weight on because of what they lost during the rut yeah. um, because they're going through basically a non-eating period for quite a while. So they're being stressed because they were already underweight or they were already growing, and now you know we're just delaying that a little bit. Um, so, But by the time April comes around, they're going to be finding plenty of food. Yeah. We're not going to have this blanket. The two things that we're missing right now, to be quite honest with you, that I've been a little um, upset about is we're missing wind, which is good because we don't like wind chill. You and I don't like wind chill. Right. Animals, it doesn't bother near as much as, as you and I because they've adapted to it. But what wind does with these kind of snow conditions is it creates openings. Yeah. That wind is not a blanket. It's going to create an open south-facing slope where the sun hits it. It opens up that ground like we talked about earlier. The animals will be attracted to that. They'll find plenty of food. We haven't seen that this year. We haven't seen the winds that are opening up those areas. And the other part that comes with that is sunshine. We've only had one day of sunshine in the last seven days. And that day, it was only two degrees above zero, but it melted snow. Right. Just the solar radiation was melting snow. When the sun hits those, those evergreens or the sun hits those bases of those trees in the, in the timber, it'll op- open up an inch or two of melted snow around that tree, which allows animals to get down and find, find uh, things to eat. But we haven't had sun. So we're not getting any solar melting. We're not getting any wind drift that's opening up our ground right now. And so we truly have a blanket of snow, and that becomes a difficult situation. Gotcha. Out of curiosity, I don't know if you have any research that you can uh, um, reference at this point, but coming out of uh, winters like this, or let's just say where you know a whitetail deer uh, buck can lose like 30% of its weight, if not more, during the rut, and then they come into a time like December where we had snow on the ground in December already this year. And it's been, you know, tougher conditions probably uh, for them than normal. Do you know anything about the, the next year's antler development as far as do, do antlers tend to go down or become smaller after harsh winters? No, I've never seen anything particularly to that because most of that antler development is going to be um, – Based upon, you know, starting essentially in April when, when the sunshine starts to get those antlers and get the glands moving again. And by that time, they should be putting their weight back on. They should be back in normal conditions. The research that has been out there that might be a little bit corollary is that when you have deer densities that are too high, you're impacting deer socially. You're stressing them socially. Um, and those young bucks just don't develop well. They don't develop antlers well. They're not needed in the population as much. And you can't theoretically grow out of that. That if you were a, a runt, for lack of a better word, as a, as a fawn, when you're a six-year-old buck, you're still going to be a runt. You're still never going to develop your full potential because of how you were developed early on. And that's a funny physiological thing that, that occurs in populations. So it's one of the things we kind of talk about in deer management, especially in Iowa, where people think more deer, more deer, more deer is you're actually maybe hurting yourself by having too many deer on the landscape if you're if you're in that deer management type of philosophy because you're stressing animals at an early age and they may never grow out of it. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of people that say, you know, you need to keep that deer herd down. You need to, to uh, monitor where it's growing, reduce the herd as much as you can if you want to get the maximum production out of your bucks. Got you. 
Okay. All right. So what about, back to the bad weather again, what about mammals like rabbits or uh, raccoons or possums and things like that? Yep. Great questions because they've all adapted to different strategy. Uh, And cottontail rabbits, again, high furnaces. They're always generating heat. They always got to be eaten. But they've got big, wide feet that gets them through stuff as long as there's good shrubby conditions. They're bark eaters. They, they actually eat uh, the outer layer, the cambium layer of, of vegetation and raspberries and things like that. And they'll basically follow that and eat it up and down with the snow. And it's funny because we'll get a lot of complaints in the spring about the deer ate all my brows off. Right. And you, go out and you look at it and you're like, no, that's all rabbit damage. Right, right. <laughs> I, can, I can tell the difference between rabbits and deer, and that's rabbit damage. So they do very well with deep snows. They just adjust to whatever the level is and eat. Raccoons, you know, we catch those big old boar raccoons. They're nothing but rolly fat in October, November, December. Well, when it's cold like this, they just wish they had a high-definition TV because they're just laying in that tree stump waiting for spring to come. They don't have to eat. They can burn all that extra fat. They've got lots of extra fur on. But as soon as it warms up or if they're in an old hollow tree and that sun hits it again, that solar radiation, and they feel the 30-degree temperature, they're coming out and looking for food. Because they're just they're just ready to eat all the time if life tells them they can. But if it's cold, they're staying inside and just hanging out. So um, possums probably have one of the hardest things because they have a lot of exposed skin. So their ears and their tail especially don't have fur on them. So you can actually see um, possums next spring or, or next fall if you're catching them. They'll have frostbitten ears. They may be missing the last two inches of their tail because it became frostbitten and it actually fell off. Um, so you'll see some damage in those kind of animals. But again, possums and skunks, a lot of those animals right now, they're just held up in a, in a hole. The ground is, uh, is warm underneath that snow. It's actually an insulating blanket. So they're just sitting there all curled up waiting for things. They're not hibernating, but they're just sitting there waiting for the right temperatures. Right. What about uh, birds? Like, obviously, non-migrating birds. I see cardinals, for yep. an example. Yep. Yep. So those, those again, they're high metabolic rates. They're burning a lot of calories. They have to eat constantly. Um, and so those birds that are non-migrating have learned strategies of where to move through, and, and they've actually sought out during their the entire year places that I'm going to be looking for food. Um, and, and that's one thing for like people with backyard bird feeders. If they're feeding birds in the backyard, they've got to be cautious that if you start bringing birds in all the time every day and that's the only food resource in the area, and then you quit feeding – those birds don't have a strategy now to go find other places. So a lot of those birds will only visit a bird feeder once in a while to kind of get their furnaces built up or get a little fat on them, and then they're spending the rest of their time looking for alternatives. In case this one goes away, where's my plan B? Where's my plan C? Um, and those, so those little birds, um, chickadees, things like that, they've got strategies to fluff their feathers up and do the best they can but they've got to find food every day, and yeah. they're looking for all those seeds. All the, you know, again, ragweed, high energy, wonderful plant for an animal. Um, if it's out there, it's available. It's just got to be out there. Okay. Uh, out of curiosity, do bats migrate? Uh, some species do. Most species do, actually. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, that's so why I'm not. Through. That's why I'm not seeing them in my attic anymore. <laughs> Well, <laughs> yeah. it just depends on the species, and most of them do migrate, um, and then and then they do go into what's basically called a state called topor, um, where they're essentially it's a hibernation state. They're just not going to be active. They're basically just going to be in a state of hibernation where they're not moving. Their their heart rates just, just like um, groundhogs, a groundhog's heartbeat will slow down to just a few beats per minute. 
Um, and essentially they're burning no calories. There's no metabolic action, and they're just waiting to warm up next spring, and then their body kicks back in, and, and they can take off. Same thing with bears and other hibernating species. Yeah. yeah. So basically, uh, you know, the thousands of years and, you know, probably more, tens of thousands of years of evolution has have led these animals to adapt to these conditions. Yeah, we're back to that, what we talked about right off the bat. It's adapt or die. Yeah. And, and, the, and the, the factor that we, we forget to take into, into account is we humans are changing the landscape. The animals will do fine as long as the habitats they need are provided. But when we change the landscape dramatically and then all of a sudden one of those components is not available or they've got to travel more or they're stressed more to find that, that kind of becomes the, the tipping point for some of those species. Okay. And so in a winter like this, if you've got good habitat management on your property or in a wildlife management area, I would not be too concerned about any species. But if all of a sudden the winter became the limiting factor, you didn't provide that grove or, or that extra um, weedy patch or whatever it might be, that could be the detrimental aspect of that, that individual or that species on that area. Yeah. yeah. So let me ask you this. Uh, for people who do own their own property or have the ability to modify the landscape and the vegetation, what are some things that you could recommend to us that would uh, be better habitat during the winter months for just all animals. Yeah. So, you know, some of that gets into, if we're just going to talk generically about all animals, you kind of want to have that piece of property that just, just is out there and happens. You're not, you're not looking for deer. You're not looking for turkeys. You're not looking for, for pheasants or quail. Just a generic landscape is to provide thermal cover, meaning places they can get out of the wind you know, south-facing slopes where that sun radiation can come in, and then providing those those edges for, and, and travel pathways that they can get from one area to another area without being exposed to predators or elements or things like that. So it's, it's I guess, the part that I always like to talk to people about. So I grew up in southern Iowa, and, you know, clean farming was never in our vocabulary. So if we kind of go back to that non-clean farming, where you got weedy corners and, and waterways that are too high and shrubby and, you know, it looks like I ought to go do some work on them, but I really don't want to, that's probably better for wildlife. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, is there anything else that you want to fill us in on uh, before we part ways today? Well, I just think it's just a great topic, and I know people are concerned about their wildlife, and people love wildlife. And again, kind of like the COVID thing is when it happens, we kind of look for the for the the good sides of it this is a bad situation for wildlife but let's take it and make the good side of it and help us manage our lands better so when it does occur we're not scrambling we just know that the wildlife will be okay because of the the management we did is going to get them through and i think that's the thing is it's that pre-planning to make sure that the the stuff's out there so that we can we'll know it'll be there when we go back outside ourselves yeah great information and jim really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on the uh a podcast today and uh, drop some knowledge bombs on us. Well, I appreciate you having me. Again, it's a great topic, and I really want to encourage people to get outside. You know, it is cold out, but we can still do a little shed antler hunting. There's still some rabbit season going on. Um, And then, of course, we can always do our winter bird watching. So just get outside and enjoy Iowa.